Awake, thou sleeper on the rock of eternity. Albion, awake! The trumpet of judgment hath twice sounded. All nations are awake, but thou art still heavy and dull. Awake, Albion, awake! Good evening and welcome to Ideas. I'm Lister Sinclair, and those were the words of the English poet William Blake. Albion, the sleeping giant, is England. His sleep, his forgetfulness of eternity. The terrors of history, his deadly dreams. Blake spent his life trying to waken him. Rouse up, O young men of the new age. Set your foreheads against the ignorant hirelings who would forever depress mental and prolong corporeal war. Painters, on you I call. Sculptors, architects. Suffer not the fashionable fools to depress your powers. Believe Christ and his apostles that there is a class of men whose whole delight is in destroying. And did those feet in ancient time walk upon England's mountains green? And was the holy land of God on England's pleasant Upon our clouded hills, and was Jerusalem builded here among these dark satanic mills? William Blake, he signed himself in a friend's autograph book. William Blake, one who is very much delighted with being in good company, born 28th of November 1757 in London, and has died several times since. He was both a poet and a painter of genius, but more than that, he was also a prophet, an inspired singer gripped by his visions and furious in his attacks on the idols of his age. His gospel was simple mutual forgiveness, and the freedom to create. Dogmatic religion he hated, whether it worshipped the cloudy, mysterious God of the churches or the abstract, rational God of the philosophers. Blake acknowledged only the living God within and believed that the way back to Eden was through the cultivation and expansion of our own imagination. Trembling, I sit day and night. My friends are astonished at me, yet they forgive my wanderings. I rest not from my great task. To open the eternal worlds, to open the immortal eyes of man inwards into the worlds of thought, into eternity ever expanding in the bosom of God, the human imagination. Tonight's program is about the middle years of Blake's life and work, his attacks on religion and the prophetic books of the 1790s, his three-year sojourn in the rustic seaside village of Felpham, where an imbroglio with a soldier led to his being tried for sedition, 
his return to London and the composition of his two great longer poems, Milton and Jerusalem. William Blake, Prophet of a New Age, is written and presented by David Cayley. Sometime in the late 1780s, William Blake invented a way of publishing his own books, which he called illuminated printing. He engraved his poetry and his designs together on a single plate, exactly how is still disputed, then printed off the individual pages, hand-colored them, never two the same, stitched them together, and he had his book. With this invention, Blake unified his different arts, poetry, painting, and engraving, and brought the whole process under his own control. This left him free to follow his own genius, and in the years between 1789 and 1795, the years when revolution burned in France, Blake created twelve of these beautiful books and many equally remarkable paintings. One of the first was The Marriage of Heaven and Hell, and in it Blake promised that he would soon offer the world what he called his Bible of Hell. This was an ironic preview of his prophetic books, longer poems in which he began to create his own mythology. In these books, Blake tells of the doings of a group of immortals with strange names like Orc and Urizen, Loss and Enitharmon. They are world builders, personifications of the psychic forces which make our world, like Loss, the spirit of prophecy, eternally building Golganuza, the city of art. Here on the banks of the Thames, Loss builded Golgonusa, outside of the gates of the human heart, beneath Beulah in the midst of the rocks of the altars of Albion. In fears he builded it, in rage and in fury. It is the spiritual fourfold London, continually building and continually decaying desolate. These fantastic beings like Loss live within us, all deities, says Blake, reside in the human breast, but he doesn't mean that this makes them less real than if they had actually been found in earth, sea, or sky. To Blake, they were more real. Who looks outside dreams, who looks inside awakes, as Carl Jung said. And like Jacob with the angel, Blake wrestled fearlessly with gods all his life. One of the targets of Blake's satire in his prophetic books was the worldview which he called natural religion, or deism. Deism glorified reason and made God in the image of human reason, a kind of mainspring in the clockwork of the universe. Blake hated this view passionately, and he satirized it in the book of Urizen. Lo, a shadow of horror is risen in eternity, unknown, unprolific, self-closed, all-repelling. What demon hath formed this abominable void, this soul-shuddering vacuum? Some said, it is your reason, but unknown, abstracted, brooding secret, the dark power hid. In his hills of stored snows, in his mountains of hail and ice, voices of terror are heard like thunders of autumn when the cloud blazes over the harvests. Urizen is a kind of parody of God the Father, hoary, 
often blind, an aged form, white as snow, hovering in mist, weeping in the uncertain light, a hopeless god imprisoned in his own laws, the primal priest, Blake calls him. He in darkness closed, viewed all his race, and his soul sickened. He cursed both sons and daughters, for he saw that no flesh nor spirit could keep his iron laws one moment. For he saw that life lived upon death. The ox in the slaughterhouse moans, the dog at the wintry door, and he wept, and he called it pity, and his tears flowed down on the winds. Cold he wandered on high, over their cities in weeping and pain and woe. And wherever he wandered in sorrows upon the aged heavens, a cold shadow followed behind him like a spider's web, moist, cold and dim, drawing out from his sorrowing soul the dungeon-like heaven dividing, wherever the footsteps of Eurizen walked over the cities in sorrow. Till a web, dark and cold, throughout all the tormented elements stretched from the sorrows of Eurizen's soul. None could break the web, no wings of fire. So twisted the cords, and so knotted the meshes, twisted like to the human brain. And all called it the net of religion. Urizen is God as a caricature of human reason. He is humanity's creative power, alienated and imprisoned within an abstract divinity. And inevitably, says Blake, he is a tyrannical God, an allegory of kings and priests, his heavens writ with curses from pole to pole. Against this God, Blake pits what he calls the divine humanity, and he takes his stand, according to Northrop Fry on the Bible, the book which Fry follows Blake in calling the great code of art. The Bible to Blake was really the Magna Carta of the human imagination. It was the book that told man that he was free to create and imagine, and that the power to create and imagine was ultimately the divine in man. That uh, Christianity, and of course it's the Christian Bible Blake is talking about, was preeminently the religion which uh, uh, united the divine and the human, and consequently opened a path of freedom to man which was infinite. The Gospels uh, represent Jesus as saying that nobody can understand God except through him, that is, except through the God-man. So you have God, and you have God-man, and you have man, and if you try to approach God without the idea of the humanity of God, then you get what he calls noble daddy, that is the ferocious old bugger up in the sky with the whiskers, with the reactionary political views who enjoy sending people to hell. Then old noble daddy aloft, farted and belched and coughed, and said, I love hanging and drawing and quartering, every bit as well as war and slaughtering. Then he swore a great and solemn oath, to kill the people I am loath, but if they rebel, they must go to hell. They shall have a priest and a passing bell. If you turn to man, simply man, 
them, of course, you're involved in all the evil and, uh, that makes man a psychotic ape. And that's the tendency that he calls deism, that is the uh, tendency to substitute the totalitarian for the social. If you insist on separating God from man, you have merely God, who is a scarecrow in the sky, and merely man, who is a psychotic ape. You have to approach it through your own humanity. The human cannot really comprehend the non-human, or what transcends the human. Man can have no idea of anything greater than man, as a cup cannot contain more than its capaciousness. Think of a white cloud as being holy. You cannot love it, but think of a holy man within the cloud, love springs up in your thought. For to think of holiness distinct from man is impossible to the affections. Thought alone can make monsters, but the affections cannot. The true humanity is the living Christ, the imprint of the divine, which in the book of Genesis, God made man in his own image. British poet and Blake scholar Kathleen Rain. The image in which God made man is not the physical body, obviously. It is the, uh, the imprint of the divine is, is our spiritual humanity. That is what we are, from Blake's point of view. And, and Blake's poem, To Mercy, Pity, Peace and Love, if you remember, for mercy has a human heart, pity a human face, and love the human form divine, and peace the human dress. He very much stresses that. When he said love the human form divine, he wasn't thinking of a beautiful statue by Michelangelo. He was thinking of the, the divine form of the human spirit. By the mid-1790s, Blake had finished with his shorter prophetic books, like the Book of Urizen. Ahead of him lay his attempts at an epic poem. But meanwhile, he still had a living to make. His main hope at this time was to move from being a reproductive engraver, copying other people's designs, to being thought of as an artist in his own right. His chance came, says University of Toronto Blake scholar Gerald Bentley, with a commission to design illustrations for a major new publication of a popular poem called Night Thoughts. From about 1794 to 1797, Blake largely ceased writing and largely ceased making commercial engravings and instead was involved in an enormous project to illustrate Young's Night Thoughts. He made 547 watercolor drawings, huge watercolors, and was eventually to make something like 150 huge engravings, folio, the largest size. And when the work, the first part of the work was published in 1797, it did not have any significant success to give him a succès d'estime. And the publisher of it at that time, I think by coincidence, went out of business. His wife had died. There are other kinds of problems. The publisher didn't foster it significantly. So it was not widely known. Blake had certainly been paid very ill for it, about 20 pounds, apparently. And for a work of that dimension, this is absurdly small. He ought to have had at least five pounds per engraving, at least one pound per drawing. And probably, therefore, he had 
foregone commercial profit in the hope of making uh, a sensation in the artistic book world. And this did not happen. The failure of this project was a major disappointment for Blake, not his last as an artist. He seems to have suffered from a combination of bad luck and an uncompromising disposition which made his creative art somewhat uncommercial. His friends pressed him to give up his larger ambitions and reconcile himself to engraving, and he temporarily submitted. His friend, the sculptor John Flaxman, found him a position with William Haley, a rural squire and a poet who had once been offered the position of Poet Laureate. A man of inferior talents to Blake's, but greater wealth and reputation, who hoped to employ Blake as an engraver and miniature painter. The Blakes agreed to move to Haley's seaside village of Felpham, and Flaxman wrote to Haley to express his gratitude. You may naturally suppose that I am highly pleased with the exertion of your usual benevolence in favour of my friend Blake. I hope that Blake's residence at Felpham will be a mutual comfort to you and him, and I see no reason why he should not make as good a livelihood there as in London if he engraves and teaches drawing by which he may gain considerably. But if he places any dependence on painting large pictures for which he is not qualified, either by habit or study, he will be miserably deceived. Despite the ominously patronizing tone in Flaxman's letter, Blake at first was innocently enthusiastic about Haley's patronage. Eartham, he wrote of Haley's country seat, will be my first temple and altar, my wife is like a flame of many colors of precious jewels whenever she hears it named. My fingers emit sparks of fire in expectation of my future labors. And so, in September 1800, they set off, the first time either William or Catherine had lived outside of London. We set out between six and seven in the morning with 16 heavy boxes and portfolios full of prints. Our journey was very pleasant, though we had seven different chases and as many drivers and could not arrive before half past 11 at night. Mr. Haley received us with his usual brotherly affection. Our cottage is even more beautiful than I thought. The villagers of Feltham are polite and modest. Meat is cheaper than in London and the sweet air, the voices of the winds, trees and birds, and the odors of the happy ground makes it a dwelling place for immortals. Work will go on here with Godspeed. At first it did. Blake gladly painted miniatures, engraved the heads of the poets for Haley's library, and designed illustrations for Haley's poems. But gradually, the strain of serving Haley's mundane purposes rather than his own began to tell on Blake. I labor incessantly and accomplish not one half of what I intend because my abstract folly hurries me often away while I am at work. This I endeavor to prevent and with my whole might chain my feet to the world of duty and reality, but in vain. The faster I bind, the better is the ballast, for I, so far from being bound down, take the world with me in my flights, and often it seems lighter than a ball of wool rolled by the wind. Duty and reality were his obligations to Haley, who clearly could not follow Blake in his flights. Haley's attitude was genial and benevolent, 
but patronizing. How patronizing can be judged from the tone in which he defends Blake to a friend who thought Blake not worth Haley's while. You wonder that I should continue to befriend him. But I must be a despicable mortal in my own opinion if I renounced him. I shall ever be glad to do him all the little good in my power, and for extraordinary reasons. Because he is very apt to fail in his art, a species of failing peculiarly entitled to pity in him, since it arises from nervous irritation and a too vehement desire to excel. Often he has appeared to me on the verge of insanity. Mr. H. approves of my designs as little as he does of my poems, and I have been forced to insist on his leaving me in both to my own self-will. For I am determined to be no longer pestered with his genteel ignorance and polite disapprobation. I know myself both poet and painter, and it is not his affected contempt that can move me to anything but a more assiduous pursuit of both arts. Indeed, by my late firmness, I have brought down his affected loftiness, and he begins to think I have some genius, as if genius and assurance were the same thing. But his imbecile attempts to depress me only deserve laughter. Blake wrote this in a letter to a friend in London in July of 1803. How much of it he ever expressed to Haley is unknown, but relations must certainly have been cooling. Then an unexpected emergency changed everything. Blake was indicted for sedition and ordered to stand trial. He had been accused of assaulting a soldier and damning the king. The incident, which led to the charge, had begun, he told his friend Butts, when he found the soldier in his garden. I desired him, as politely as was possible, to go out of the garden. He made me an impertinent answer. I insisted on his leaving the garden. He refused. I still persisted in desiring his departure. He then threatened to knock out my eyes with many abominable imprecations and with some contempt for my person. It affronted my foolish pride. I therefore took him by the elbows and pushed him before me till I had got him out. There I had intended to have left him, but he, turning about, put himself into a posture of defiance, threatening and swearing at me. I, perhaps foolishly and perhaps not, stepped out at the gate and, putting aside his blows, took him again by the elbows and, keeping his back to me, pushed him forwards down the road about fifty yards to where he was quartered. Thus you see, my dear friend, that I cannot leave this place without some adventure. It has struck a consternation through all the villages round. Every man is now afraid of speaking to or looking at a soldier. Blake was in considerable danger. England was at war with France, and this was during a period when an invasion was anticipated, an invasion which would have struck at the south coast where Blake was living. There was also popular unrest. Indicted at the same time as Blake were ten men accused of rescuing a comrade from a press gang in a neighboring village. Blake went to trial in January of 1804. He was defended by a lawyer friend of Haley's called Samuel Rose. Gentlemen of the jury, I will state to you the situation of Mr. Blake, and it will be for you to judge whether it is probable he should be guilty of the crime alleged. He is an artist brought into this country by Mr. Haley, a gentleman well known to you 
and whose patriotism and loyalty have never been impeached. He has a wife, and that wife and himself he has supported by his art. An art which has a tendency to soften every asperity of feeling and of character, and to secure the bosom from the influence of those tumultuous and discordant passions. Blake was eventually acquitted, despite the fact that he might very well have damned the king and his soldiers. The case against him was weak. The Sussex Weekly Advertiser reported that when the jury gave its verdict, the audience threw the court into an uproar with their noisy exultations, in defiance of all decency, adds the examiner. The trial had put Blake very much in Haley's debt. Haley had hired Blake's lawyer, served as a character witness at the trial, and generally thrown his considerable local influence behind him. A strange circumstance for Blake, who had been so angry with him such a short time before. The combination of the trial and his earlier tensions with Haley put him in a pensive mood about his difficulties in making his way in the world, and about the way he struck people of milder temperament and less pressing genius than himself. Oh, why was I born with a different face? Why was I not born like the rest of my race? When I look, each one starts. When I speak, I offend. Then I'm silent and passive and lose every friend. I am either too low or too highly prized. When elate, I am envied. When meek, I'm despised. Between the time of his indictment and his trial in the fall of 1803, Blake returned to London. In London alone, he writes, can I carry on my visionary studies unannoyed, converse with my friends in eternity, see visions, dream dreams, prophesy and speak parables, unobserved and at liberty from the doubts of other mortals. Once back in London, he found himself out of favor as an engraver, but he continued to work for Haley and to be, as he calls himself, Haley's devoted rebel. Then, about a year after he had returned to London, he experienced an enlightenment. He described it in a letter to Haley. For now, O oh glory and O oh delight, I have entirely reduced that spectrous fiend to his station, whose annoyance has been the ruin of my labours for the last past twenty years of my life. I was a slave bound in a mill among beasts and devils. These beasts and these devils are now, together with myself, become children of light and liberty, and my feet and my wife's feet are free from fetters. Suddenly, on the day after visiting the Trachsessian gallery of pictures, I was again enlightened with the light I enjoyed in my youth, and which has for exactly twenty years been closed from me as by a door and by window shutters. Dear sir, Excuse my enthusiasm, or rather madness, for I am really drunk with intellectual vision whenever I take a pencil or graver into my hand, even as I used to be in my youth, and as I have not been for twenty dark but very profitable years. I thank God that I courageously pursued my course through darkness. What had actually happened to Blake is hard to tell, since we know so little of his life, but this letter certainly corresponds with a broader turn in his art. During the revolutionary years of the 1790s, he had been preoccupied with energy, 
energy in the sense of eros, life force. Energy is eternal delight, he says, in the marriage of heaven and hell. Now he turns much more to vision and emphasizes the prophetic role of the artist. It isn't a change in the sense of renouncing his earlier ideas. It's a development of these ideas. At the same time, there's also a development in his conception of Christianity. In the marriage of heaven and hell, he describes Jesus as acting from impulse. Now he identifies Jesus with the imagination. Professor Gerald Bentley. This identification of Christ and the imagination is certainly not visible before this time, and afterwards it is. I think, in part, it is the discovery that his own mythology, his private, invented mythology, can be brought into harmony with not only his own religious life, but a not very uncommon kind of religious life. I don't mean to say that he was ever conventional, but that Christian metaphors, Christian ideals can be reconciled with what he has written before about, say, the four Zoas, about Euros and loss and so on. And in these respects, therefore, he is not so much turning his back on the old ways as building on them, adding something to them, making it far more meaningful to him. The old poems from um, Songs of Experience, Visions of Daughters of Albion, Book of Eurism, all of these seemed closed, despairing, and dark eventually, whereas the poetry after this letter are affirmative, finding that the imagination can build, not merely reclaim, not prevent from falling further, but build a new Jerusalem. I don't see any sign of a new Jerusalem in the poetry of the 1790s during these dark years. Of the sleep of Alro, and of the passage through eternal death, and of the awaking to eternal life, this theme calls me in sleep night after night, and every morn awakes me at sunrise. Then I see the Saviour over me, spreading his beams of love and dictating the words of this mild song. Awake, awake, O sleeper of the land of shadows, wake, expand. I am in you and you in me, mutual in love divine. Return, Albion, return. I am not a god afar off, I am a brother and friend. Within your bosom I reside, and you reside in me. O Saviour, pour upon me thy spirit of meekness and love. Annihilate the selfhood in me, be thou all my life. Blake began writing his poem Milton while he was at Felpham, and he engraved the first two copies of it in 1808. It was his reckoning with the figure of John Milton, a poet with whom Blake wrestled all his life, loving him as another inspired man, but passionately disagreeing with many of his views. Northrop Fry. I suppose it's an example of what Harold Bloom calls the anxiety of influence. That is, uh, Milton and Blake were so close together in their points of view, and yet there were things about Milton which uh, confined him to the 
17th century, his very literal view of the Bible, he thought of uh, the story of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden as literally and historically true. His instincts as a poet drove him in, in another direction, but still that, that was there. And uh, Blake felt that a poem in which Milton was more or less transcended by entering Blake would also be, for Blake himself, a kind of emancipating process. The poem is about the nature of inspiration and about how it violates our normal understanding of time and space. Its central figure, aside from Blake and Milton, is loss. Loss symbolizes the creative imagination, and in a highly charged moment of the poem, Blake fuses with him. Trembling, I stood exceedingly with fear and terror standing in the vale of Lambeth. But he kissed me and wished me health, and I became one man with him, arising in my strength. T'was too late now to recede. Loss had entered into my soul. His terrors now possessed me whole. I arose in fury and strength. I am that shadowy prophet who, six thousand years ago, fell from my station in the eternal bosom. Six thousand years are finished. I return. Both time and space obey my will. I, in six thousand years, walk up and down. For not one moment of time is lost, nor one event of space unpermanent, but all remain. Every fabric of six thousand years remains permanent. Though on the earth where Satan fell and was cut off, all things vanish and are seen no more. They vanish not from me and mine. We guard them first and last. The generations of men run on in the tide of time, but leave their destined lineaments permanent forever and ever. Time, for Blake, is a medium of creation. We build eternity in time. Time is the mercy of eternity, he says in another passage from Milton. Without time's swiftness, all were eternal torment. It's a view which Michael Ferber believes Blake owes to his roots in the Hebrew Bible. Michael Ferber is the author of The Social Vision of William Blake. The Hebrew culture seems to stress time history, its own history, uh, starting from the Exodus and going through to the final days. And Christianity inherits that sense of time, a distinct beginning and a distinct end. Whereas the classical culture, Greek especially, but Roman too somewhat, uh, saw time as circular or cyclical and were perhaps more concerned with space, or at least saw politics in spatial terms more than in temporal terms. Now that's far too simple, but Blake comes from the, the dissenting Puritan tradition of Protestantism, which I think revived that older Hebraic notion a bit more, and were very acutely aware of history, of their part in it, of God's plan for it, 
providence, the end of days, the apocalypse, and so on. He inherits this and seems to be more worried about attempts to spatialize things, that is to, well, to do what Newton did and to see the universe as a fixed mechanism which has no history or to see politics as an attempt to freeze social forms eternally. So he wanted time to be the most important term because it's in time that change can take place, that revolutions and revelations can occur. Newton and modern physics gave us the idea of an invariable, constant, measurable, physical, external universe of time and space. Kathleen Rain. But for Blake, space and time were not external, measurable. Length, breadth, and height, he said, must once more obey the divine vision. That is to say, they are experiences. And he talks about Albion in his redeemed state, once more creating space, creating time, according to the wonders divine of the imagination. He says, but before their fall, Los and Enithamon, who are the agents of space and time, at times they would murmur in a flower small as the honeybee, and the space of the flower would open out into a universe. Every child knows this. Or at other times they would explore among the stars expanding and contracting their exalted senses. At will they murmur in the flower, small as a honeybee, at will they step from star to star. The sky is an immortal tent built by the sons of Los and every space that a man views around his dwelling place, standing on his own roof, or in his garden on a mount of 25 cubits in height, such space is his universe. And on its verge the sun rises and sets. The clouds bow to meet the flat earth and the sea in such an ordered space. The starry heavens reach no further, but here bend and set on all sides, and the two poles turn on their valves of gold. And if he move his dwelling place, his heavens also move where'er he goes, and all his neighborhood bewail his loss. Such are the spaces called earth, and such its dimension. As to that false appearance which appears to the reasoner as of a globe rolling through voidness, it is a delusion of Ulro. For every space larger than a red globule of man's blood is visionary, and is created by the hammer of loss and every space, smaller than a globule of man's blood, opens into eternity of which this vegetable earth is but a shadow. The whole of nature exists within the body of the universal divine humanity, which he calls the imagination. He calls it Jesus, the imagination. His nirvana is not an empty nothingness. It's a, a plenitude of intellectual forms. It is, that is nature. It is continually nature is welling up from the centers of the birth and of life in this fountain of creation. It isn't a structure 
once and for all. It isn't this mechanism, this soul-shuddering vacuum, which is what he calls Newton's universe. It is a living fountain. It's the tree of life. And that is what nature finally is to him. There is no separation between the creative source and that which is created. Thou hearest the nightingale begin the song of spring, the lark sitting upon his earthy bed, just as the morn appears, listens silent. Then, springing from the waving cornfield, loud he heads the choir of day, trill, 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 mounting upon the wings of light into the great expanse, re-echoing against the lovely blue and shining heavenly shell. His little throat labours with inspiration. Every feather on throat and breast and wings vibrates with the effluence divine. All nature listens silent to him, and the awful sun stands still upon the mountain looking on this little bird with eyes of soft humility and wonder, love and awe. Then loud from their green covert all the birds begin their song. The thrush, the linnet and the goldfinch, robin and the wren, awake the sun from his sweet reverie upon the mountain. The nightingale again essays his song, and through the day and through the night warbles luxuriant, every bird of song attending his loud harmony with admiration and love. The climax of the poem comes when Milton confronts Satan. Satan to Blake meant selfhood, the empirical ego, we might say, or the natural man. Satan, in this sense, is the creator of the world because the world is a product of our restricted vision. In confronting him, Milton is renouncing his self-righteousness and committing himself to live purely by inspiration. In the eastern porch of Satan's universe, Milton stood and said, Satan, my spectre, I know my power thee to annihilate. Such are the laws of eternity that each shall mutually annihilate himself for others' good, as I for thee. Thy purpose and the purpose of thy priests and of thy churches is to impress on men the fear of death, to teach trembling and fear, terror, constriction, abject selfishness. Mine is to teach men to despise death and to go on in fearless majesty, annihilating self, laughing to scorn thy laws and terrors, shaking down thy synagogues as webs. I come in self-annihilation and the grandeur of inspiration to cast off rational demonstration by faith in the Saviour, to cast off the rotten rags of memory by inspiration, to cast off Bacon, Locke, and Newton from Albion's covering, to take off his filthy garments and clothe him with imagination, to cast aside from poetry all that is not inspiration, to cast off the idiot questioner who is always questioning but never capable of answering, who sits with a sly grin, silent, plotting when to question like a thief in a cave, who publishes doubt and calls it knowledge, 
whose science is despair. These are the destroyers of Jerusalem. These are the murderers of Jesus who deny the faith and mock at eternal life. Blake's last illuminated book was called Jerusalem, the Emanation of the Giant Albion. The poem comprised 100 engraved plates, twice as many as Milton, and the first copy wasn't printed until 1818, just nine years before Blake's death. As with Milton, the strength of the poem is not its kaleidoscopic narrative, which is fairly confusing, but its wonderful individual moments of vision. The action of the poem is the fall, the sleep, and the eventual awakening of Albion. Albion is the uh, collective being of the English nation. He is England. He is the sleeping lord who has fallen into this deadly sleep of materialism. His deadly dreams are the history of England with its wars, and Blake was writing the time of the Napoleonic Wars. It was an extremely dark moment in English history that Blake was writing in, and it got considerably darker. The dark satanic mills, the enslavement of women and children to the machines, the conscription of the young men into the armies to fight in Europe, all these things which Blake indicts were the deeds of Albion in his alienation from the divine within him. Blake believed that Albion could be awakened, that it was the task of the poets and the men of vision, the poets, painters, musicians. This is the whole thing. Blake believed it would happen. Jerusalem is very much about the England of its day, the England of the Industrial Revolution. Blake's attitude can be seen in the way he produced his books, by hand, his poems were never set in movable type. He saw the machine as the destroyer of labor. Of Albion, he says, his machines are woven with his life. This is one of his descriptions of industrialization. And all the arts of life, they changed into the arts of death in Albion. The hourglass contemned because its simple workmanship was like the workmanship of the plowman, and the water-wheel that raises water into cisterns, broken and burned with fire, because its workmanship was like the workmanship of the shepherd. And in their stead, intricate wheels invented, wheel without wheel, to perplex youth in their outgoings, and to bind to labours in Albion of day and night, the myriads of eternity that they may grind and polish brass and iron, hour after hour, laborious task, kept ignorant of its use that they might spend the days of wisdom in sorrowful drudgery to obtain a scanty pittance of bread. In ignorance to view a small portion and think that all. Blind to all the simple rules of life. Wholesome, unalienated work is one of Blake's definitions of truly human life. And his closeness to Karl Marx on this point has always endeared him to Marxists. In fact, according to Michael Ferber, practical, sensuous, energetic activity extends even to Blake's conception of eternity. Some of the, the best passages, or the most interesting passages in Blake, I think, are his attempt to talk about what eternity is. 
Now, since he was very much an inner light or here below sort of Christian, eternity doesn't seem to mean heaven as a transcendental other place. Eternity seems to be a state of mind that we can build eternity here. He certainly says so in this great hymn. We can build Jerusalem and England's green and pleasant land. But eternity, wherever it is, is not a place where we're all sitting around playing harps or singing songs. It's not like Dante's heaven where people are sitting at various levels and prepared to give lessons in theology to visitors. Um, it's a place where what's going on is something like what goes on before we attain eternity. The same kind of laboring and debating and what he calls mental fight. Only it's done in a higher key and without the physical warfare, the, what he calls corporeal warfare that plagues the world today that the fighting will be done among brothers and sisters around a table. In fact, I think he thinks of eternity as something like a very lively university where people coming in from all over and having a long seminar about the most important questions. And we'll all keep growing mentally through our vigorous wrestling with one another. Sounds exhausting. Uh, and he does allow, I think, for certain days off, a place he calls Beulah, where we could rest up a bit. But I think what he wants to imagine is a kind of fiery, higher form of the sort of thing that he tried to do all the time anyway as he was writing poetry and engraving it. Albion, our wars are wars of life and wounds of love with intellectual spears and long-winged arrows of thought. Mutual in one another's love and wrath, all renewing, we live as one man. For contracting our infinite senses, we behold multitudes or expanding, we behold as one, as one man, all the universal family, and that one man we call Jesus the Christ, and he in us and we in him live in perfect harmony in Eden, the land of life, giving, receiving, and forgiving each other's trespasses. He is the good shepherd, he is the Lord and master, he is the shepherd of Albion. He is all in all, in Eden, in the garden of God, and in heavenly Jerusalem. The figure of Jesus dominates Jerusalem. He dictates the words of Blake's mild song, and he greets the awakened Albion at the end. Throughout Jerusalem, Albion is asleep on a rock under the Atlantic, and it is the tireless prophet Loss who must continually try to rouse him. Loss, in his eternal form, is called Earthona, or Earth Owner, but he turns back from eternity to save Albion. I know I am a Thona, keeper of the gates of heaven, and that I can at will expatiate in the gardens of bliss. But pangs of love draw me down to my loins, which are become a fountain of veiny pipes. O oh, Albion, my brother, corruptibility appears upon thy limbs, and never more can I arise and leave thy side, but labor here incessant till thy waking.
Albion does finally wake and arises, and the poem concludes. Then Jesus appeared standing by Albion as the good shepherd by the lost sheep he had found, and Albion knew that it was the Lord, the universal humanity, and Albion saw his form, a man. And they conversed as man with man in ages of eternity. All was vision, all a dream. And they conversed together in visionary forms, dramatic, which bright redounded from their tongues. Every word and every character was human, and they walked to and fro in eternity as one man. On Ideas, William Blake, Prophet of a New Age, Part 2. It was written and presented by David Cayley. Readings from Blake's works were by Barry McGregor. Other readings by Gilly Fenwick. The series was produced by Damiano Pietropaolo, with assistance from Alison Moss. Technical Operations, Lorne Tulk. If you'd like a free reading list for this series, write to us at Ideas, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W1E6. And to order a printed transcript, send a cheque or money order for $5 or $15 for the whole series to Ideas Transcripts, Blake, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W1E6. Please allow six to eight weeks for delivery. Tomorrow night on Ideas, Francophones on the Prairies. Edmonton writer and broadcaster Maurice Morin, a third-generation Francescois, crosses the prairies talking with francophones. We hear what he discovers about himself, his people, and his country. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht, and I'm Lister Sinclair. Good night. <laughs>